ETL Echo presents A Dress with Pockets by Pacific Grimbo. Chapter 2. A Plain White Tea. The first letter had arrived while her knickers were still damp with both of them. Tuesday, February 15th. Pansy, thank you for... I had... I'll never for... How will me soon? Neville. There was an ink splatter near the bottom where he'd apparently dropped his quill. She didn't owl him back. The second one came in the evening, while she was getting into the soaking tub in her family's London townhouse. She'd forged ahead through the disastrous maudlin photo shoot with Draco and Hermione, both idiots. And then she'd had owls throughout the day from Narcissa giving her updates on Lucius, also an idiot. She was done for the day, for the month, with Malfoys and soon-to-be Malfoys, and ready to let her stress dissolve into a steaming fugue of scented bath oil. Thursday, March 2nd. Pansy, I hope you've been well. I'll be back in London for a while. Flew me, if you like. I think of you often. Neville. She brought the creased parchment close to her nose and inhaled, but she couldn't find the scent of him anywhere on it. She dropped the letter on the floor next to the tub, closed her eyes, and breathed in a mouthful of perfumed steam, floral notes over an earthy vegetal base, potent and expensive. For the first time, she found it disappointing. She received the third letter in her Paris studio, pins in hand and squinting at the hem of a bridesmaid's dress, her wand clenched between her teeth. Monday, March 20th. Pansy, I'm in Tokyo for two weeks. I have a weekend free. I can meet you anywhere. Neville. In the bottom right corner, a hasty postscript read, I can't stop thinking about the way you taste. She had the port key ordered within an hour. Four days later, she arrived just outside the Koredo Muromachi shopping complex in Nihonbashi, black leather weekender bag in hand, and from there apparated into the lobby of her hotel. Housed in the top floors of a luxury tower rising above its neighbors in the Tokyo skyline, it was exclusively for wizarding guests, and she was shown into her suite by a pretty young witch who eyed Pansy's knee-length blush pink dress. Do you like it? Pansy asked. It's so beautiful. The girl gushed. You look like the sample size, Pansy said. I'll have my assistant send one in this style over. Show this card in one of the witch's dress shops in Ginza that carry my line, and they'll adjust it for you. As she kicked off her heels, she reached into her pocket and pulled out a business card with the Parkinson logo and handed it over. It has pockets, the girl exclaimed, and Pansy gave her a wry smile. One of my signatures, she answered. Half an hour later, she sat at the end of the minimalist platform of her bed and watched the sun sink in an amber band behind a sparkling sea of skyscrapers, the symmetrical silhouette of Mount Fuji behind them to the west. What was she doing here? Fucking Longbottom. Which she told herself she'd never do again. It wasn't that she didn't want to, quite the contrary. It was that she rather did, and while she had expected that time, distance, and ignoring his owls would let the embers die out on that little conflagration, she could feel them now smoldering away all the time. The thoughts were intrusive. Sitting in a meeting with a Paris client, she thought of slouching in a different chair, the feel of a three-star hotel towel against her skin, untucked and pulled at her hips. Her skin was still damp from the shower. Neville's hand covered one breast, and his head was between her legs. If she closed her eyes, she could almost feel the curls of his hair, nearly black when it was wet, between her fingers. Upon returning from Italy, flushed and exhilarated despite her best efforts to quash the giddiness she'd felt all week, she felt her cheeks go pink when Hermione asked, Did you have a good time? The best, she responded, and her belly flipped. The best, she heard herself whisper on another day, in another room, dude with sweat and quivering on Neville's cock. I'll tell you all about it, but let's get set up for the publicity shoot today, hmm? She wouldn't tell her all about it. Never anyone all about it. And then there were the times, waiting in the line at a boulangerie or sitting in the window seat of her bedroom in London, sketching an idea for a formal gown, when she thought of him awake at 5am, sitting in a chair at his hotel room desk, He'd put on a pair of inane cotton pajama bottoms and stripes of Gryffindor red and gold and tapped the end of a quill against his bottom lip. She'd watched him for a long time, eyes tracing the curve of his jaw, his neck, the lean line of his belly rising and falling softly with his breath, until he looked up and saw that she was awake. 
He came back to bed then, and within a few moments, she was shoving the pajama bottoms down his legs with her feet. I hate them, she whispered across the bricks in his kiss, more than I've ever hated anything in my entire life. When he pushed into her, he was trying not to smile. The worst part was that she'd tried to be interested in someone else, anyone else in the meanwhile, but every attempt she'd made ended with her trying not to hex the balls off of some unctuous, self-satisfied prick in a bar, or at a party before he could even ask to flew her sometime. She was simply going to have to fuck it out of her system. The thought made her wiggle where she sat. She'd come prepared. Her weekend bag was neatly packed with several day dresses and some suitable for an evening out. The silk robe and the three sets of the sort of window dressing that men like so much. Stockings and garter belts. Translucent knickers that went halfway up the backside on purpose. Bras with gratuitous straps that hinted at kinky pleasures, and were either cut so low they barely concealed one's nipples, or sheer enough to put them on full display. She'd bought all this broke frippery in Paris. On the same day, she'd had a full-body scrub, been oiled, plucked, and magically depilated. Skin made so soft and smooth in every distant corner and secret seam that it shone. She was going to seduce him over dinner, and then after kissing him until she made that stupid, delicious mouth of his plead for more, she would short-circuit his brain with her underthings, ride him until he begged, and slide her hot mouth over his cock until he cried. She'd make Neville Longbottom come so hard it would wipe that easy, comfortable Gryffindor smile right off his face, and remind them both that she was in control. Of herself, or of him. Either would do. Once her clothes were hung and smoothed with a quick spell, she went to the bathroom and spent twenty minutes strapping herself into a garter belt and a tiny pair of sheer knickers, clipping lace-topped stockings into the garter straps, settling everything just so, and hiding it all underneath a little black dress. It was a vintage-inspired piece from one of her own line, prim, even a bit twee, from the front with a high neckline and cap sleeves, but backless with a fitted skirt that played with the idea of being just a little too short, but followed the lines of her body like an impeccably tasteful second skin. Finally, she fussed at the borders of the red lips she'd perfected and magically sealed hours before. She looked young and sharply beautiful, ready for a night that could be classy or wild or both. She was a witch with possibilities. The knock at her door made her insides jolt, and she fumbled the cap back onto the tube of lipstick before reminding herself not to yank the door off its hinges as she opened it. He stood there, in a plain white shirt and a black tie, with his hands in his pockets like he was ready to go whistling about Hogsmeade with his Gryffindor mates. His sleeves were rolled up past his elbows. Merlin's braided fucking merkin she wanted him. Hi, Pansy, he said. She answered by gripping his shirt front and pulling him into her. She needed to smell him. Rising onto her toes, she fitted her fingers into his dark hair, then pulled him down to press her face into his neck and breathed. I'm sorry I didn't owl, she said quietly into his skin. Damn, she hadn't meant to say it. Hadn't even really thought it before it came flying out of her mouth like that golden snitch Potter nearly choked on. It's all right, he answered, wrapping his arms around her and pressing her tightly. We never said. You weren't obligated. I got your letters, and I read them, and they didn't smell like you, she said. She felt drunk, or dosed with veritaserum. Her plan was unraveling. She needed to stun him with her fancy underwear, get him safely leashed and licking out of her palm, perhaps even literally. Instead, he laughed. I'll see what I can do next time, he said. Merlin, they both needed to shut up. Pansy tugged at his hair to pull his mouth down to hers, and it was like a breath of wind across a dying blaze on a dry day in August. Everything was on fire. She needed him inside of her. Five minutes ago would have been perfect, but now would have to do. And as she bit on his bottom lip with her teeth and then opened up her mouth to his tongue, she reached between them and stroked his cock firmly through his trousers. His hips jerked, and then he murmured, Hey, there's no rush and circled the back of her wrist with his thumb. We have lots of time. No, we absolutely do not, she thought. I've spent five weeks, three days, and twelve hours being haunted by the ghost of this fucking cock, and I need it. I need it now. Now, she said out loud, and then, begging like a sodding schoolgirl, please. He kissed her hard on the tail end of a sigh, pressed his hips into her belly, and said, All right. He reached down to grab the backs of her thighs, lifted her off her feet, and pressed her into the wall. She could feel his cock through his trousers, its length slotted perfectly against her, 
and without taking her mouth from his, she dragged herself against him once and again, feeling her knickers slip against the wet heat building at her cunt. He moved one hand between them, and the soft clink of his belt buckle and the sound of sliding leather made her shiver. She reached down and yanked her knickers to the side. Are you... are you wet enough? He panted. I can. She nodded quickly and urged him forward with her heels. Resting his forehead on hers, he looked down between them while he guided his cock into her in one slow, easy stroke. Oh, gods, he breathed as he watched himself disappear inside her. She could say nothing, only take deliberate breaths as her body worked to stretch around him. Soon she began to roll her hips, starting a rhythm that he matched with short strokes that kept the base of his cock dragging against her clit. If Pansy had ever made a bet that she would never allow herself to look and sound completely fucking desperate with a man's cock buried inside of her, she would have lost. She was like an explorer dying of thirst in the desert who had stumbled on an oasis. Only the desert was five weeks without this. And the well she drank from was Neville Broom bungling plant-plucking Longbottom, and his rolled-up shirt sleeves and implausibly brilliant dick. Yes, she whimpered repetitively, and also, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck. And once, hideously, I love this fucking cock. All of which he swallowed up in long, thirsty drafts with his mouth to hers. Her body began to tense early, coiled tight like an overwound key in a music box, and when he pulled a hand from behind her thigh to thumb at her clit, she grabbed it with her own and threaded her fingers through his. I don't need it, she said, and he shuddered, then brought their hands to the wall above her head and began to move his hips faster. Come with me, she whispered. He squeezed her hand in his, and as her hips began to tilt frantically against him, she pleaded with him so quietly she wasn't sure she meant him to hear it all. Please, please, please. Okay, shh, I will. It's okay. With that, she came, hard and fast, clutching at him with her legs and her cunt so tightly all he could do was rock his hips into her while she pressed a silent, open-mouthed cry against his lips. He thrust into her two more times, and then groaned hoarsely while their bodies stuttered against one another. Her long sigh came down as equal parts satisfaction and relief. They slid down the wall together, and came to rest on opposite sides of the narrow entryway with their legs tangled, drawing air into their lungs, fingers still loosely woven. Neville tucked himself back inside his trunks with his free hand, tilted his head back against the wall, and gazed at Pansy. Hello, he smiled. She grinned weakly back at him and blinked, slowly, like a house cat in a patch of sun. His eyes traveled down her body to the straps trailing up into her skirt from the tops of her stockings, and without shifting from where he was splayed against the wall, and entwined around her exhausted limbs, he reached out and gave one of them a gentle twang. These are awfully nice, he said. You hungry for dinner? The next morning, they both woke up late and had a slow, lazy fuck before ordering up white rice with fried eggs, miso soup, and green tea, and eating breakfast at the dining table. Neville in his trunks and a white t-shirt, pansy in her silk robe, while watching the city buzz below. When they'd finally dressed, she dragged him to over half a dozen witches' shops in Ginza, the sorts that were sparsely merchandised, with clothes that people sometimes refer to as investment pieces. She'd look at him appraisingly from the side of her eye and ask him his opinion on everything she tried on. He gamely weighed in on the traditional witches' robes in emerald green, elaborately embroidered for formal ministry functions. Very nice. They look like something my gran would wear. To a pair of blood-red, thigh-high dragon-skin boots with four-inch heels, just to get a reaction. I had hip waders like that once, only a different color, and the heel was a bit different. In a wizard's clothing shop, she piled his arms with soft dress shirts, natty ties, close-fit wool trousers, and sweaters made from the hair of some kind of magical hissing Napoli's mountain goat that had to be sung to while combed, not sheared, to harvest its long, silky fibers. She made him try everything on, then smiled to herself with what she would have called pride if she didn't know any better when she overheard the shop girls whispering to one another that he was awfully good-looking. They weren't wrong in the least. The sweater alone is a month of my ministry salary, he protested with a laugh when she suggested he looked particularly edible wearing a deep burgundy pullover over a nicely tailored checked shirt, a simple tie, and tweed trousers. 
In the end, she was only able to persuade him to accept the handwoven scarf in a red and green tartan she'd purchased herself and had wrapped and bagged before he could tell her no. She didn't allow herself to touch him familiarly in public, up until Neville pulled to a stop in front of a muggle department store and smiled broadly. Hey, Pansy, look, it's Tokyo Cat, he said, pointing to a display featuring the figure of a simplistic white cartoon feline with a massive round head, yellow oval nose, and a bow at its left ear. I've seen loads of it around the city. I think it's the Japanese muggle's mascot, he said earnestly. Do you suppose they have pajamas with it on? She grabbed his hand in hers, and her shoulders shook while she pressed her face into his arm to hide her smile. They took the muggle train from Ginza to Setagaya, just to watch the city stream by and then eat bowls of spicy ramen, and afterward apparated to Shibuya to find a karaoke box, a concept which neither of them fully understood until they were faced with electronic equipment they didn't know how to use and a list of muggle songs they'd never heard of. Should I stay or should I go now? shouted Neville into some kind of voice-amplifying device. Go, Neville, barked Pansy dryly, sipping chilled sake from a wooden box. Go, now, you're done. Neville drank beer and sang poorly, and then played the tambourine while Pansy drank sake and sang well. After he'd had one too many to apparate them both without possibly splinching one of them, and Pansy had one too many to walk without wobbling and was absolutely going to splinch everyone, they grabbed a muggle cab and kissed in the back seat, scattered and hungry for one another, on the drive back to the hotel. When they arrived, Neville steadied her way into the lobby, where she told him it was time for a nap. He picked her up and slung her over his shoulder. Neville, she stage whispered into the small of his back as he piled them both into the lift. Yes, love? He massaged the back of her thigh. It's your bum, she muttered, patting it. Yes, it is, he answered, gripping her firmly as the lift rose. Did I ever tell you how beautiful it is, she crooned, chomping at it with both hands. You can't see it, so you have to believe me when I tell you that it's perfect. Say you believe me, Neville. I believe you, Pansy. Especially when you're just out of the shower. I'm going to design for it. I'll build an ad campaign around it, and then I'll bite it. That sounds brilliant, he said, rounding the corner from the lift toward her room. Let's just get you through this door, and we'll sort that all out. But first, I'm going to suck your cock. Okay, he coughed. Let's revisit that idea in the morning. But I want to now, Neville, she whined as he kneed her door open. That is definitely not happening, he replied, approaching her bed and laying her across it. He sent for a hotel elf and asked for anti-nausea, sobriety, sleeping, and hangover drafts. She turned onto her side and watched him move about the room, conjuring a glass of water next to the bed and pulling an extra blanket from the closet. Lovely, 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 Neville, she sang softly, bundling her knees up to her chest. You know what's funny, she continued, changing gears and volumes entirely, is that you're brought up being told there's one way to do it all properly. She paused and thought. You move properly, you speak properly, to comport oneself, to be intelligent, but not so much so that it threatens anyone. To be perfectly beautiful, just to net the right wizard from the right family and make him the right children. And then he goes and falls in love with an arse. I mean, she shook her head, a girl's arse, a dentist's arse, two whole dentists, I think. She yawned into her pillow. And gods, it's a nice arse. I mean, it's clever as blazes, and you can't fault the arse here, Neville. But what was the point of it all? She watched him as he pulled his shoes off and straightened the room. Draco's an arse man, then, he laughed. He is, she confirmed. I'd have blown you brilliantly, by the way, she grumbled, closing her eyes and tucking her arm under her head. You'd have had entire dreams about it. I have no doubt whatsoever that's true, he answered, spreading the blanket over her. You know, she continued, quiet again, I never really was in love before. Not with him, but I suppose I couldn't have known. He stilled. It's rather dreadful, actually, she sighed. Sometimes it feels as though your heart's been transfigured into glass, and someone's letting a toddler walk around with it. It's that alarming. An elf apparated into the room and handed Neville a bunch of stoppered glass vials, bowed slightly, 
and apparated away. Neville lifted her to sit up, unstoppered a vial and held it out to her. I hate the toddler, Neville, she mumbled, knocking back the vial in one go and grimacing. I know, Pansy. Here, take these two as well. She was asleep within half a minute. In the morning, she remembered up until the point of getting out of the cab at the hotel, but nothing about their conversation. Neville had her tip back the hangover draft immediately, and for the rest of the day they lounged about the hotel room. They ordered up food to eat, and while Neville leafed through a handful of books he'd brought over from his hotel, Pansy spread out all ten Japanese muggle fashion magazines she'd bought the day before on the bed, and scribbled notes about them in her sketchbook. For a long while in the afternoon, they sat together in the bath, spelled to remain hot, sifting through a single copy of the Daily Prophet spelled to remain dry. Finished? Pansy asked Neville before flipping each page. As it approached evening, Neville announced that it was time to go out. If I ask where we're going, will you tell me? She wondered. Dress for being outdoors, he said, at night. They ate thick udon noodles and crispy tempura at a counter, and then Neville took them on a walk, ending at the Sendagaya Gate of the Shinjuku Gyoen, a large national garden. You'll have to come back for the plants without me, Pansy teased. Come on, you'll see, Neville said, taking her hand. They passed through a turnstile where Neville swiped some sort of card to let them in, and then he pulled them to the right. There was a gate, two rectangular doors set into a roofed wooden frame, the left one propped slightly open. Pansy could tell that it was not only an order of magnitude older than the post-Muggle War structures of the rest of the park, but also spelled and warded to the teeth against Muggle view. Beyond the gate was a flight of deep earthen stairs framed in wood, turning out of view to the left. Everything was silver-green and hushed as he led her around the curving trail that suddenly opened up into a grove of trees. There were twenty of them, each a tall black-limbed silhouette in the dusk, and all looked entirely bare, their stark branches twisting into a darkening sky. Pansy wondered what on earth they were doing here. At the border of the grove, there was a sort of potter's shed, green with lichen, and from it emerged a man. He was older than the both of them, but not by many years, and he carried a lit wand in front of him. Neville, hey there, he said. He had an American accent, not one she was entirely familiar with, but something like the wealthy witches from California Pansy sometimes met with in Paris and London. Hiya, Tom, Neville replied. This is Pansy Parkinson, he continued, gesturing toward her. Pansy, this is Tom Akiyama. He's a magico-entomologist with Makusa. Hey, Pansy, nice to meet you, said Tom, arm out and ready to engulf her in one of those crude American handshakes. Pansy placed her hand lightly in his, with relaxed fingers, palm angling down. Makusa, she asked. But before anyone answered her, both Tom and Neville's attention was drawn up to the bare trees. It's pretty much dark at this point. I think they're about to go, Tom said, and Neville nodded. Tom muttered a quick, knocks, and the three of them were plunged into near-total darkness. What's about to go, Neville? She pressed anxiously, but he didn't answer. Nothing happened for a good two or three minutes, during which Pansy deeply questioned her interest in men who kept her after dinner hours in the dark in closed public gardens, but then the space around them suddenly began to grow lighter. Watch, Pans, Neville whispered. She watched. And as she did, on every twig of every branch of every one of the trees in the grove, Clusters of pink, pale flowers slowly opened and began to glow. Each bloom contained only a tiny, luminous spark, but they grew in clusters of five or six, with four or five clusters to a twig, and seemingly infinite twigs on each branch. Within a handful of breathless minutes, the grove was lit up with a million little lights the color of sunset. There was a scent, too, something like clematis and orange blossom, edibly sweet and heady. Neville, Pansy began, but he grabbed her hand and gave it a squeeze. That's not even the best part he said quietly, and before she could ask what he could possibly mean, the moths began to come out. They roused themselves from their hidden daylight places in the surrounding shrubs and grasses, shook out their wings, and flew. They were a ghostly green, with enormous furred bodies and wide, stub-tipped wings edged in a pale gold that made a buzzing sound as they beat the air. Each one was the size of a galleon, and there were thousands and thousands of them. 
Their broad wings lifted them away on careening flight paths, and as they ascended into the canopy of the trees, they too began to glow, their bodies and wings sparkling into green-white luminescence as they circled the blossoms and hovered like hummingbirds to drink. Pansy had never seen anything more beautiful in her life. Prunus candentis and macroglossum stellatarum luminosa, Neville said softly. A night-blooming luminescent cherry tree and a glowing subspecies of the hummingbird hawk moth. Both magical. They evolved together in Japan, but the moth died out here early subsequent to the Second Muggle World War, and the trees have really struggled since. These were the last twenty of them in Japan, before the cultivation project we started last year. He squeezed her hand and smiled at her with a look of deep contentment. My great-grandparents planted a magical hobby grove on an island in Washington State when they emigrated to America, added Tom. They preserved the moths there, on accident, and I've been working with the Japanese ministry to reintroduce them here. Neville finally figured out the major puzzle pieces with the trees. The blight issues, helping with the bloom pattern, moisture problems, and soil contamination, all that stuff. The blossoms have really gone nuts in the last two seasons, so this is the largest generation of moths we've had by far. Pansy watched as the moths floated and sparked around the blooms. This is what you do, she said to Neville. He shrugged. Yeah, but it's not usually like this. Field work is more often boots ankle-deep in muck, four-inch thorns, things that try to poison you without noticing. He laughed. But you preserve things, help them survive, she said. Plant conservation, yeah, he replied. Pansy stared at Neville, bathed in the shallow pink glow of perfumed cherry blossoms that carried little stars at their hearts. His face crossed with the countless tiny shifting shadows of shining moths that almost never were again, and kissed him. Off in the grove, she could hear Tom and his big American laugh. Pansy was set to Port Key into Tokyo at 6 o'clock on Monday morning and arrive in Paris at 10 o'clock on Sunday night, the only form of time travel she cared to explore. At 4 a.m., her robe was invisible in the dark, and unwilling to wake him with an illuminated wand, she pulled Neville's white t-shirt from the floor and tugged it over her head on the way to the bathroom. She tried her best to be silent as she crept back toward the bed, but he sat up, propped himself on his elbow, and stared at her. Something in his face looked wounded. What? she asked. He said nothing, but sat up more fully and swung his legs over the side of the bed. Neville, what's wrong? She pushed. He cannot, cannot, cannot say that this was the last time, she thought. Come here, he said finally. She walked cautiously toward him, pausing an arm's length away before he reached out and wrapped his hands around the backs of her thighs and pulled her closer. She stood between his knees. He pressed his forehead into her chest and breathed in deeply. Pansy, he said. She was petrified. She'd had a plan. It was all under control. What was it? It had something to do with naughty knickers, but they were buried at the bottom of her bag, entirely forgotten. How had she forgotten them? This is my shirt, he said hoarsely, rubbing the hem between his fingers. It is, she admitted. I think, he said, weighing his words carefully, that you're actually trying to kill me right now. He lightly ran the tips of his fingers from the backs of her knees, over the backs of her thighs, over her backside, up the length of her back. She was entirely bare underneath. You want me to take it off? She asked, his hands stilled. No, he answered. Yes, no, I don't. She smiled and dropped to her knees in front of him. He was hard even before she began to press kisses against the inside of his knees, and by the time she had reached into his trunks and pulled him out, the tip of his cock was leaking against her hand. She licked the thick bead of moisture away from his head and looked up at him through her eyelashes while she flicked her tongue softly around him. He looked completely lost. She moaned as she sank her mouth around his head, letting wet trails trip from her mouth and down his length to where her hand circled his base. Because she liked this, too. How good her tongue felt lapping against him. How pleased she felt when his cock pulsed under her fingers as she built a rhythm between her hand and her mouth that covered every inch of him. She wanted to see how far she could take him, and with every downstroke of her mouth, her wrist twisting her hand around him and her tongue flicking against him, she brought him closer to the back of her throat. Don't choke, he gasped, while his breath quickened in his belly. Please, 
I don't want you to. She nodded with the head of his cock still resting on the back of her tongue and swallowed around him. She went slowly, sliding up and down his length with deliberation and patience, and listened to him unravel. He touched her, too. His hand stroked slowly through her hair, circled his thumbs at the nape of her neck, curved along the helix of her ear. He ran curious fingertips around her mouth while it stretched around his cock, and then reached down to roll her nipple with wet fingers through the fabric of her shirt. His shirt. She clenched her thighs together and slid her mouth over him faster. Pansy. She nodded. I'm, I'm going to. You should stop. She shook her head. I don't want you to, if you don't like it. She nodded. Please, Pans. His belly heaved with his breathing. She moaned and pulled him as far back as she could toward her throat. And when he curled around her, coming against her tongue with a cry of Pansy, she swallowed him down. He picked her up and put her down on the end of the bed. When she came, she could see herself reflected in the glass of the hotel window, a ghost with blurred edges. She had washed away her makeup before bed, and she wore a white t-shirt, pushed up around her shoulders while his hands pulled at the peak of one breast. Her ankles were hooked together against his back, and her arms were cradled around his dark head of hair, his mouth and fingers working between her legs. Beyond her, the lights of Tokyo burned through the last hour of the night. The fourth letter came while she was wrapping up a conversation with Hermione over the flu about whether or not a lipstick she'd recently sent from Paris, that she'd quite adored and really didn't want to have to stop using, was cruelty-free. Pansy knew better than to send her anything that wasn't. Wednesday, March 29th. Dear Pansy, I asked a colleague at Mahotokuro, and she suggested I try a potion. A magical perfume, actually. Its core formula is a relative of Amotentia, but the sole impact is that the recipient will detect a scent they associate with the sender. I'm not sure how this will work. I've been told it can be quite unpredictable. You could smell old beer in a karaoke box or the inside of a train car. I hope it's something pleasant. Thank you. I'll never forget it. Any of it. Neville. Pansy brought the parchment to her nose and inhaled. It had top notes of cherry blossom and lichen, earthy and sweet. But on the other side of those, the single, unmistakable heart note was him. Thank you for listening to Address with Pockets by Pacific Rimboard. If you enjoyed this reading, and would like to stay up to date for other chapters and stories from ETL Echo, you can follow us on TikTok, Tumblr, Twitter, and Spotify at etl.echo.audiobooks. ETL Echo, echoing tales of enemies to lovers.